There's a question that's been offered this evening, uh, which says, Please, could you talk about what, if anything, Buddhism says about mental illness? and or what issues you think might arise for people with depression who would like to start practicing Buddhism. Well, maybe the place to start is to say that wherever we are, wherever we meet ourselves in life, whatever issues we feel we might have, whatever difficulties, challenges, history, uh, limitations and problems and so on. Uh, from the Buddhist perspective, there's always hope. And there's always something we can do about our situation. Uh, and I, I think this is a very important that sometimes you, some of the uh, world religions lay down all sorts of criteria for who can get involved or who's going to benefit and so on. Um, the Buddhist teaching uh, doesn't lay, lay down any such criteria that, that uh, everybody, all of us, uh, can benefit. There's something that the Buddhist teachings can offer to, uh, to help us meet ourselves where we are and move on. And it is important, I would suggest, that, that for people who are suffering from depression, who want to pick up the Buddhist path of practice, that... Uh, they heed uh, the, this aspect of the Buddhist teachings that, that alert us to keeping it practical, keeping it realistic. Hmm? Um, Buddhism, like all spiritual tools, uh, all religions, you, you can engage it in a way whereby you end up becoming more idealistic. And then we have uh, great ideas of how we should be. And, and lots of judgments of how we shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. Talking with a group of students who came today down from Edinburgh to offer the meal and be here for part of the practice day we had this afternoon, and and they were some of them were, you know, I was complaining is fair enough, complaining about uh, how they couldn't meditate, that the meditation is hopeless and. Often the reason that people feel they can't meditate is because they have an unrealistic notion of what meditation involves. You can listen to some teachings and teachers on meditation and, and they present the teachings in very complicated ways or with expectations for our arriving at certain states of samadhi, certain states of concentration and of happiness and and bliss and, and understanding and lights and, and visions and, and, and such things. But here I am, you know, just stupid old me. You know, and, and then, you know, after hearing such a talk, you even end up feeling worse. Or maybe you get inspired momentarily and you go away and you really, with renewed energy, really 
hammer away at your meditation and willfully try to improve yourself. And you might even make a little progress for a while, but then you end up falling flat on your face again and feeling worse than you did before. And, uh, and that's unfortunate because uh, the, the, the Buddha's encouragement was uh, not to just uh, grasp idealistically about how we should be, but to be simply mindful of what is. It always this is the place it begins. And so this is what we're talking about with these students today. That you know, When you pick up a meditation practice, we've got to start with what we've got. You can't climb a ladder from the top. You can only climb a ladder from where you are and you take the next rung. And You know, if you're a bit bold, you might go two rungs up, but you, know, you, you can't be too foolish about it, otherwise you end up falling off. So suffering from depression or m- mental illnesses... Now, the place to start is, uh, is with being very modest, very realistic, and practicing what the Buddha referred to as uh, santosa, or, or contentment. And, and even if we're not suffering from serious mental illness, actually this is something all of us can, can uh, heed, to be modest in our efforts. You know, the momentum of our... Uh, consumer society, the way our world is, is always if you're lacking something, you've got to get more, and the quicker you can get it, the better the person you are. Just before, because we can get what we want quicker, it makes us better, and that's the sort of values that are floating around. Well, if we heedlessly bring that into a spiritual life, or you know, we're desperately wanting to improve ourselves, overcome our problems, and become better people, and so on, and but that very motivation, that very view, undermines the effort that we're making. So, um, to begin with contentment, you know, wherever we are. I, I, um, uh, some of you are probably familiar with uh, Ajahn Brahmawongso, the uh, abbot of the monastery in Perth, a very good friend of mine. We ordain at the same time uh, and uh, regularly talk with each other on the phone. And, and uh, he's very well known for his... Um, his strident, enthusiastic encouragement for people to develop the jhanas and, and his own uh, exemplary joy and enthusiasm inspires people to do so. But if you listen carefully to what Ajahn Brahm is saying, he always encourages people to never bypass the stage of contentment. You've got to start with being contented. And being contented doesn't mean to say that uh, we like what we've got, you know, like for depression, you can't, you can't like depression. But if the state we find ourselves in is one we were always stirring it up with saying it shouldn't be this way, I shouldn't be this way. Well, you know, it's like that story I've told you a zillion times about when I had my knees operated on and, and the doctors told me two weeks and two months later I'm still not walking and I'm pretty, you know, pretty depressed, actually, very depressed and very disappointed and miserable. And I went to see Ajahn Chah and I can't even get on the floor properly and bow to him. And, and I start complaining and say, oh, Lumpur, it shouldn't be this way. The doctor said this and it's like that. And he just looks at me with this surprised expression on his face and just, you know, come on, you know, what do you mean? If it shouldn't be this way, it wouldn't be this way. That's how it is. That's the truth. You know, if there's depression, there are causes for there to be depression. 
So if we keep adding to it, it shouldn't be this way, what does that do? So whatever our condition, whatever our state of feeling limited, it's important that we approach it with the carefulness, with the mindfulness, to be able to see how, how we can be making it worse. And if we can do that, if we're contented to do that much, If we're contented, not with you know, leaping ahead and suddenly getting over our depression or leaping ahead and suddenly developing the jhanas, but just to be contented with this. Just to say, yes, this is how it is. And, and to inhibit that tendency to say it shouldn't be this way, it should be like that. Then we discover something. We actually discover, we, we find we're in a place where we're really taking responsibility for what we add to the situation. And that's where good feeling comes from. That's where our strength comes from. We start to feel strong. We actually, oh, I can make a difference just by just this much. Just by inhibiting the tendency to remove myself from myself and then just pass judgments on myself. You know, just inhibit that tendency and just to accept this. Even depression, stop fighting it. I say depression feels like this with a mindfulness in the body. It's a very important thing. Again, often now excessive zeal and enthusiasm for profound insights into emptiness and whatever else we think Buddhist teachings are about means that we, we, uh, we can end up bypassing the first foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness in the body. Yeah, very, very basic encouragement. to Have we got a whole body awareness? This awareness permeating the whole body so we, we can be in touch with what's going on. So if you feel depression, well, this is the place to start to establish mindfulness in the body. And, and we can feel depression in the body. What does depression feel? To really train awareness, to really to talk about it, you know, to find somebody you can talk to about it in the here and now. You know, so this is what I'm feeling right now. This is where I'm feeling it. This is the sensation of depression. And we start to discover things about this depression. We start to discover things about the sensations that we have an association with our our so-called mental illnesses or feelings of limitation. And what we start to discover is that there is a bigger picture. There's a context in which all this is happening. You know, what is it in which all these sensations are arising and ceasing? All these thoughts are arising and ceasing? All these feelings and emotions, where are they arising and ceasing? Well, for the sake of convenience of, of, of conversation, of discussion, you know, we... We can use the word awareness. You know, we don't want to turn awareness into another thing, you know, which is uh, something you need to be careful about. But you know, for the conventional perspective, say, there's an awareness in which even the sensation of depression is arising and ceasing. And if we, if we are contented to practice in this way, then little by little we discover this awareness increases. Yeah. We're not following our greed to overcome our problems, but just modestly staying with just incremental, incremental increases. Incremental increases in awareness. If we can stay aware of the body just a little bit longer, then with that incremental increase in awareness comes a new level of understanding. And it's not something that I figured out. You know, this is why 
as Buddhists, I go for refuge to the Dhamma. You know, I go for refuge to reality. Reality is what is. Okay, I don't see it most of the time. All I see is how I want things to be otherwise. You know, I want things to be how I like them to be. But I do trust there's a real reality. In Buddhism, we call it Dhamma. So I go for refuge to Dhamma, to how things actually are, beyond all my picking and choosing, my preferences, my likes and my dislikes. I trust there is this real reality, and I go for refuge to this. And may this reality manifest when the conditions are right. And so with this humility, with this willingness to bear with the way things are, and a simple, mindful practice here and now in the body, this awareness, this mindfulness does increase. And with that, as I was saying, then there's also the increase in understanding. The little insights start to come naturally. Now, I can remember a time in my early years of practice when uh, I didn't suffer from gross depression, but I did have a sort of a low-grade depression that, that I realized with hindsight was hanging over me most of the time. And uh, after a few years of practice, what I realized with hindsight was that what was being cultivated was the strength of awareness, the strength of mindfulness, the strength of here and now presence that what was underneath the depression could come up. And what was underneath the depression in my case was I was really angry about all sorts of things. But for all sorts of reasons, you know, I decided it wasn't okay to feel angry, you know. Probably even before I became a Buddhist monk and I was told I wasn't supposed to be angry. A long, long time before that, I got the message, you're not supposed to be angry, so I decided I shouldn't feel angry. And so I didn't feel angry. And so what happens, the energy goes underground and, and then you start to have, feel like you've got something sitting on top of you all the time. And uh, the thing that's just sitting on top of you all the time is, uh, could also be called depression. In a way, what I realized with hindsight was that that depression was uh, kind of functional. You know, sometimes people make a big problem out of depression. That I've got to get over my depression and and take medication, that, you know, to deal with it and so on. And well, yes, there can be a time and place for using skillful use of medication. But also with mindfulness and with the emergence of understanding, there can be a recognition. Well, you know, d- depression also has its place. Sometimes depression is just like keeping a cap on things until we have enough mindfulness and restraint in place. So that when the energy that's underneath, whether it's anger or sadness or whatever, can come up, but we don't become it. You know, we, don't, we don't fall into the old trap of grasping at the old stuff. Which, if we do that, well then actually, of course, it makes things worse. So this kind of understanding you know, can emerge gradually and um, selflessly. If we, and this is what I would encourage in such situations, if we pick up our practice in a very modest way, very careful, modest way, uh, being willing to see incremental improvements, you know, not, not uh, becoming overly idealistic. As far as what uh, the Buddhist scriptures have to say about it, I confess I'm not aware of uh, the Buddhist scriptures particularly talking about mental illness, other than to say that that uh, all illness uh, has a myriad of causes and you don't want to jump to conclusions because the truth is we don't know. Uh, it's a, an unfortunate kind of new age thing to say that all illness is caused by karma. Uh, that's, that's, it's a very rather unkind thing to say to somebody because uh, we certainly don't know if it was caused by karma. And uh, the Buddha certainly didn't say that all illness was caused by karma. Some illnesses are, are caused by, um, 
by food that you eat. Yeah, it's, it's not karma, it's just, you know, the food that you get given, there's all this food around and full of all sorts of chemicals and uh, it just happens to be that it disagrees with the, the chemicals that this body is made up of and they end up getting sick. I mean, it's not karma, it's just the elements disagreeing with each other. Sometimes it can be karma, that's true. Sometimes they, or illness can be caused by karma. Um, sometimes the illness is caused just by an accident. Walking out there in the dark and you trip over a stone and stub your foot and get a little infection. and Well, that's just what happens. It doesn't mean to say that in my last life I kicked a donkey or something. And, you know, <laughs> which I've been told, you know, somebody told me in Thailand, I, I've got these painful knees and I mean, just, somebody took me to see a well, Mordu, you know, kind of, sort of, kind of, sort of a witch doctor character. And, and he said, oh, yes, in your last life you kicked a horse. <laughs> Oh, thank you very much. So, I don't know, maybe I did. Anyway, I'm very careful about kicking horses uh, or cats. I, <laughs> I don't try not to kick anything. But the main thing I would suggest with regards to this, uh, this question is, is modesty, you know, to, to be realistic and, you know, with regards to our mind but also with regards to our behavior. Keeping the moral precepts. The moral precepts can be very refined and, and, and you can set them up as very idealistically about how I'm never going to break any one of the five moral precepts and, and uh, I'm going to be perfect by body and speech. And, and when we do that, well, we're setting ourselves up for you know, big disappointment because we have habits. So the, thing to, the more realistic, practical thing to do is to listen to what these uh, precepts say, you know, when they... We have the ritual we go through. Say, I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. I undertake the training to refrain from lying, stealing, so on. These things. So what we're doing is we're engaging in a training. I undertake the training to. Well, as with any training, we don't expect to become an expert overnight. It's just that little by little, uh, we train ourselves. And so uh, this uh, this this keys in with uh, something else that's been on my mind lately, which is um, as a result of uh, a response I got. I was, I was talking to a young monk about practice, and I, I asked him, I wanted to check out to see what his views were, and I, I asked him, well, what's the most important thing in, uh, in our training? And, and one of the first things he came out with was seeing the danger in the very slightest fault. And... And then went on to, to tell me, well, of course, this is a quote from the scriptures. It's, uh, it is it's something that's mentioned in the, the Megiya Sutta, something the Buddha encouraged if you want to keep your uh, priorities right, keep yourself, keep things in perspective, that, that you have to, for, for monks and the training with regards to the Patimoka rule, you need to uh, see danger in the very slightest fault. Well, this, uh, I was very pleased to hear this response, and it... Uh, and even then also to qualify it by, by, by letting me know, say, oh, of course I'm quoting from scriptures here, this is not something I'm, I thought up myself. And I thought at the time, well, that's, that's, that's really a beautiful thing, that degree of integrity, that, uh, you know, what's the most important thing? Well, seeing danger in the slightest fault. You know, to be so focused on one's, one's behavior of body, speech, and mind, to see that even the slightest fault is dangerous, and that needs to be recognized. And then to have the integrity to, you know, to point out and say, oh, yeah, of course, I didn't think this up myself, I'm quoting the Buddha. And I thought, well, that's, you know, that's pretty rare. 
in our world these days, that degree of refinement of integrity and the the standard of uh, human interaction, as we're all aware, is, uh, yeah, it can be pretty gross, really. Uh, Compromising integrity, uh, very, very normal. And not actually recognizing the danger in the slightest fault. And and then the thing is, if we if we don't understand this principle of the need to be refined, well then what happens is there's an accumulation of well never mind, it's okay, it's only a small thing. Uh, it's only a small thing, it doesn't matter. And so there's a verse in the Dhammapada, or two verses in the Dhammapada, verse one two one where the Buddha points out, he said, uh, don't underestimate the effect of evil, thinking this will come to nothing. Just as the gradual falling of raindrops fills up a water barrel, so a fool becomes filled with evil. That's one, two, one, then one, two, two. He goes in saying, don't underestimate the effect of the accumulation right action saying this will come to nothing just as the gradual falling of raindrops just as by the gradual falling of raindrops a water barrel, water butt uh, fills up so with time the wise become replete with good now in our uh, in our rather deluded way of seeing things we, we do often fall prey to this thing oh it's just a small thing doesn't matter. It's insignificant, and yeah, it doesn't matter. And but it does matter. The small things actually do matter. And, uh, and perhaps that's something I, you know, I would like to highlight this evening: how the small things do matter, and that to refine our attention down. Just because the world isn't interested in refinement doesn't mean to say that that we're not. And we can choose to do this. We can choose to pay attention to details. Now, sometimes people start paying attention to details. People call you a fuss budget. You know, people call me a fuss budget. They think I'm a fuss budget. And I say, well, I've got three planets in Virgo. I'm allowed to be a fuss budget. And this monastery is full of Virgos. And, you know, so we're just a, a bunch of fuss budgets. But actually being just a little bit of a fuss budget can be quite helpful because if you don't, <laughs> if you don't see the consequence of the accumulation of the small moments, you know, we, we misperceive this, you know, right? I'm, uh, as soon as I think about this, I'm reminded, of course, of Schumacher. Yeah, and, um, small is beautiful. Many of you will have come across Schumacher, yes? Yeah. And um, so in 1973, I think he published his collection of essays. Schumacher, I don't remember exactly, but he had, I think he had a job, something to do with the coal industry, an economic advisor or something like that. Anyway, in 1973, he published this, um, first published, this collection of essays called Small is Beautiful, and, um, and he addressed this issue very eloquently and, and with great consequence, actually. And the first, the first chapter in this, uh, this collection of essays is called The Problem with Production. This is back in 1973, and he, he goes into the fault that the economy of the time, you know, where everybody always thinks the more, the merrier, the bigger, the better, and continual growth and so on. But the fault of the economy at the time, and he was talking particularly about natural resources, in particular about fossil fuels, and he says, you know, treating them as expendable income 
is folly. You know, these are, these, this is actually capital. This is not something that you can replace. This is the idea that you can just keep spending your capital and there's not going to be any consequences. And he went on to detail, went on to explain in detail how we need to pay attention to the balance of these things. If we don't pay attention to the balance, then we do. We get deluded by the thing. Bigger is better. Uh, he talked about um, the. He also talked about the uh, limited capacity of the environment to deal with pollution. In 1973, it's taken a long time for people to actually listen to what he had to say or to see the the, the truth of what he was saying. So these. Uh, this is something that we very easily lose sight of. We, you know, the, uh, if we're always thinking. The momentum of thinking causes us to override. You know, we hear these teachings about like Schumacher and so on. There's some intuition immediately lightens up and says, oh, yes, definitely. But if we're always thinking, we, we override our intuition and we get caught up in you know, basically what is greed. And, and the, uh, like the, some of the, I can remember some of the stories that I, I was told as a child. I don't know whether people tell these stories anymore, but. I, I, I tend to think that Game Boy and television and I don't know about the images that people get these days, but I remember there were some images that I was given as a child that I think st stood me in very good stead. One of them, the story you many would have heard of the, the Dutch boy with his finger in the, the dike, you know, you're all nodding your head, you know. Do children get told these stories these days? They do. Um, yeah, what is it? I mean, what is the moral of that story? Well, one of the morals of the story is, you know, okay, it's a little trickle coming through the dike, but the little boy says, oh, actually, you know, these dikes are important. It's only a little trickle, but okay, I'm going to get in trouble if I arrive at school late, but I've got to deal with that, and I've got to put my finger in the hole. And so he does. And as the story goes, he stays there all night. And, uh, of course, his parents get worried and so on and so forth. But then in the morning, some farmers come by and see this poor little boy there with his whole hand now stuck in, at least as I was told it, stuck in this hole that's getting bigger in the dike, but he's actually saved all of Holland. Yeah. Small is significant. Yeah. Uh, also, I remember a, uh, a story that uh, my grandfather, my grandfather was another great Yorkshireman. I don't know if this is um, a bit of Yorkshire folklore, if it's something that's true or whatever, but he, t he used to tell me this story um, about a man who called his house Tisbat. And people ask him, say, why do you call your house Tisbat? And so he tells this story, and he says, well, when he was a young lad, and you know, he would go out delivering newspapers, and he would earn a little bit of money and so on, like his friends that all earned a few, few bob here and there. And, and then when it comes to the weekend, all his friends wanted to go off and, and spend their money, you know, go off to the movies or go off for a boat ride and, and he didn't want to spend his money because he wanted to have his house. He wanted to save up his, his house, save up his money and buy a house. And he said whenever his friends ob objected, you know, he said, I don't want to spend my pennies. And they said, oh, tis but a penny, tis but a penny, or, or tis but a thrippence. Remember thrippences? Thrippences, remember? Those nice little silver things that you find in the Christmas cake have gone all green. <laughs> they don't do that anymore, do they? Yeah, tis but a penny. And the idea being, then, uh, my great dear grandfather, my wise grandfather, Wilfred Duncan, was uh, 
pointing out that the small things do matter. It is but a penny. Actually, a lot of pennies accumulate. And, uh, and so to pay attention to this, to, to not dismiss the small moments. I mean, Ajahn Chah, when he used to teach us about the, the rules of discipline, as monks, you know, we have the, all these rules, 227 rules, and, and the first four really, you know, really heavy ones, these first four rules that if you break them, you're finished. You're not a monk. As soon as you've broken the rule, you're not a monk, and you can't be a monk again in this life. And uh, you know, killing a human being, sexual intercourse, stealing something of value, and claiming some spiritual powers that you don't have. These four things are absolute kind of complete no-nos. And then the next set of rules are Sangari-sesa rules, which are mostly to do with you know, transgression of the sexual boundaries. And these ones are really also really heavy. You break them. You've got to appear before the whole community and, and acknowledge your transgression of the training. Uh, kind of real heavy stuff. And so I used to think, oh, God, I don't want to break those rules. You know, the small ones, well, never mind. You know, but whatever here and there. But so long as I don't break the serious ones. But what Ajahn Chah used to say was actually, he says, you don't want to worry about the, the big ones, the Parajikas and the Sangri Sases. You don't worry about those. He says, they'll look after themselves if you look after the small ones. Well, that really pulled me up because it's absolutely the opposite of what I was thinking. I thought, well, just so long as I don't break the big ones. But what was happening was that with regards to the small ones, there was this mind state going on saying, oh, well, I can get away with that. Nobody sees me doing this. But the lack of refinement of awareness meant that that mind state accumulated. Okay, well, thank goodness I never did break any of the serious ones and uh, so far, and I don't intend to break any of them. But it did take me a while and quite a bit of confusion before I got to see where the real cause of the suffering was. It was in that, just dismissing the small things, dismissing the small things, thinking the small things don't matter turn on a tap and suddenly the barrel fills up. Well, it's not like that. You know, it's drop by drop that the barrel of water fills up. And so with little moments of, not just little moments of, of unwholesomeness, you know, like a little moment of deceit, uh, but also little moments of goodness. Don't dismiss the uh, effect of accumulation of right action, yeah. thinking this will come to nothing. Now, the accumulation of right action is whenever we perform a right action or a good action, a wholesomeness, there's a little bit of wholesome potential generated. Now, we, in our greedy state of mind, says, well, I want sudden enlightenment. You can read those nice Zen books, Paul Reps, Zen, Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, that I used to read when I was at university decades ago. And, you know, there's that one story of the monk who's out there sweeping the, the leaves and a stone hits a piece of bamboo and he's enlightened. Oh, wonderful. What a wonderful religion. <laughs> Sweeping leaves and you get enlightened. Oh, it's just great. I like it. Smoke something else again. <laughs> Give me another story like that. And, uh, well, of course, what they don't tell you in the stories is that that Zen monk had been busting himself for the last 10 years, sitting for 15 hours a day. <laughs> Sitting with, you know, with incredible determination. And so, okay, you know, maybe and there is the moment of when the pebble hits the bamboo and there is a, a moment of awakening, something falls away and we see something new. Yes, you know, but what was the conditioning of consciousness? You know, again, there's so much talk around these days of you don't have to do anything, you know, just wake up and you just see it. 
just see the Dhamma, just see truth, you know, see what's real. And, which is all well and true, and, but people who talk like that, you know, I suspect they had to work very hard before they got to the point of having that sapin. <laughs> I told you before about Krishnamurti and the, you know, Krishnamurti poo-pooing meditation, but, you know, for many, many years Krishnamurti did a lot of meditation. The Buddha's perspective was actually you don't underestimate, in fact, that's, that's what he says in this word, don't underestimate the effect of the accumulation of right actions, you know, thinking this will come to nothing. Just as the water barrel falls drop by drop by drop, you know, the wise become replete with goodness. And so this is, I, I mention this because it's something that can encourage us, whether we're suffering from mental illness or depression or, or we're just you know, wanting to say, well, how can I keep this practice going in the right direction? Well, let's not be too idealistic. You know, let's be realistic and practical and see how we can improve ourselves a little bit. You know, like with, in meditation, you know, these recurring obstructions that we can have in practice. Over and over again, we keep coming up to these same habits, these same tendencies to get lost, or, or the same emotional upthrusts. You know? Last week I was talking about how important it is to train ourselves to be willing to let go of fascination with our mind and just come back to the body. Come back to the body. Uh, and that, but that's the first step with dealing with some of these, these wild upthrusts of passion that keep tripping us up all the time. Then we need to refine it by negotiating a relationship with these unruly passions. And it is a refinement. It's a refinement of attention, a refinement of, of observation. And so, yes, the first thing is, okay, there's these wild passions flare up when we, we suffer, we get caught up, we think, we, we sweat, we get confused. I mean, what happens when these things happen to us? And, and so the meditation is, okay, come back to the body. But if we just do that as a um, reaction, you know, doing the technique that we've been taught, we're not doing it with a very sensitive, careful watchfulness, well, it's still not going to do the business. And what we need to do then is once we've developed the willingness to pull back from being caught in our mind state and, and simply bear with an awareness in the body, then when the time is right, we go back again. And it's a, it's a process, it's a very refined process of going back and negotiating this relationship with the mind state. It's like you, you, you're caught up in it, you come back, and so you've got this now, your whole body awareness, and until you feel strength again and clarity and confidence, and then you bring up this mind state again. And you go back, and it's like having a dialogue. It's like if you have a major falling out with somebody, a major falling out, and say, okay, well, I just won't talk to that guy or that woman again for a while. That's the best thing to do. If you have a major falling out, just say, okay, let's have some space. But you don't want to cut somebody out of your life, and so when the time is right, you go back, you meet up, and you start, you know, can we have a cup of tea? And But you don't go boom, back in there and say, what did you say that for in the first place? There's no refinement in that. So, so you talk about the weather and you know what movies you've been watching lately and where you're going for Christmas or whatever. And then little by little you get around to what was there, what needs to be addressed. Well, so it is with refining the way we engage the struggles that we have inwardly. You know, we, we use the technique to, yes, bring ourselves out of being compulsively sucked into mind states, come back, for instance, to the body awareness, 
and then to redress with it. Say it's, it's some anger or anxiety. When you feel ready to find a way of bringing it up again, feeling it in the body, listening to the thoughts, bring this state, this mood, this state, bring it up again. But we're here now and we're negotiating, we're feeling it. Now if you start to feel like you're getting sucked back into it again and becoming it, then you pull back out again to the body. You don't stay out in the body too long you know, and you're just hoping that it's going to go away because it's not. There's a time to go back in there and to you establish a dialogue until eventually you start to realize you can have a conscious relationship with this state. But it does take a refinement of attention. With our meditation, with, with our speech, you know, speech habits. You can struggle with saying the wrong thing, saying things that are hurtful, getting caught up in heedlessness and gossip. Or whatever. So, well, I've got to change. We're coming to New Year soon, aren't we? New Year's Eve, we're going to have our forgiveness and renewal ritual here in the Dhamma Hall as usual and you're all invited to come along and join, as usual. And so we, on one side of the piece of paper, we write down all the, the people we want to ask forgiveness from and the people we want to forgive. And then on the other bit of paper, we write the aspirations we have, the things we want to aspire for. And so <clears throat> I really want to aspire to practice right speech. Okay? I want to aspire to practice right speech. Well, that's a good thing, isn't it? That's a good thing. But the aspiration itself, that's just the first step. Well, then we need to refine that down. So the application of the, the uh, practice with regards to practicing right speech is, well, what can we do What can we do in the moment, in those moments, when we tend to get lost? Well, one of the things we can do is we can refine our attention so that we're having, say we're having a dialogue, having a discussion with somebody on a, perhaps it's a difficult subject, perhaps somebody is saying something that's painful to you and painful to hear. And what our habit is, is to just say something back. Yeah. defend ourselves, you know, or explain ourselves, or show how clever we are, or whatever. Nothing solved, nothing resolved. Same old story, over and over. And then they come back and they try and tell us, you didn't hear what I'm saying, let me just tell you one more time. <laughs> and so then the, the energy level goes up a bit and say, well, I just want to tell you I heard what you said, but I just... <laughs> and you, it gets nowhere. Well, what you can do with our speech is we can refine our attention to speech. And for instance, when we find ourselves in those sort of situations just to train ourselves to pause. There's another one of those great lessons. that This was my grandmother, not my grandfather. This was my, my dear grandmother. She, she used to say, count to ten, dear, before you open your mouth. Now, of course, probably most of us were told that. And, you know, I don't know whether we heeded it or not, but we probably could heed it a bit more. Now, whether we're counting to ten or whether we're just using the mindfulness and the understanding, say, well, if I just open my mouth and react, all this person's going to hear is my resistance. So we can train ourselves. Just, just very simple refinement of attention in the moment when we're talking to somebody, just to pause. Not to speak quite as soon as we would. And then... We can develop that further and say pause and then, and then 
remember whole body awareness. Now we train ourselves in meditation with this, this whole body awareness. And so we pause and we're about to say something, but no, we pause. Whole body awareness. Wow, what do we discover? But your, your belly is tense. So why? Wow, just said, well, I didn't speak from that place because they would have just heard that tension. Or your shoulders are up around your ears. So, wow, what's going on there? That's interesting. So we relax our shoulders, relax our belly, or we relax the whole body. And we're getting into it. And the other, the, you know, pause, and awareness, the whole body, relax. And then we find ourselves saying something that communicates because there's a whole body mind here and now here and now we're not caught up in our story and we find that we have the presence of attention that's not just holding down our resentment and resistance to what they're saying or our fear and our habits of 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 defending ourselves rather we discover that our presence of attention here and now means that we can access just those words that really, really connect with just what I'm feeling right now, and we say something that wonderfully communicates. Yeah. Now, where did that come from? Where did all that come from? Well, it came from this willingness to be just a little bit more refined in our speech with our attention. So, uh, to mention these things this evening... Um, really just to encourage us all to not not overlook the small moments. Just because we can't see progress in practice, for instance, doesn't mean to say we're not practicing. One remember one teacher he was asked something about how to you know judge progress in practice. He says, Don't look back in time periods of anything less than five years. I think that's helpful. He goes, I like to look back and say, well, last year. and say, well, am I better than last year? Yeah. His encouragement was look back in five-year chunks, you know, modesty. One of the, the, the discourse the Buddha gave to Mahapajapati, the first bhikkhuni, when this bhikkhuni came to see the Buddha and said, can you give me a criteria for what is Dhamma and what is not Dhamma? And a wonderful teaching he gave. Uh, listed these eight things. If it accords with this, it is Dhamma. If it doesn't accord with this, it's not Dhamma. And he listed these things. Uh, dispassion, detachment, dispersal, modesty, contentment, frugality, effort, and solitude. Things, uh, contentment, modesty, frugality. These are, these are things that the Buddha held up. as These are actually qualities that... If we no, don't just imitate them because grandma or grandpa told us that it's good, because this part of us will then just rebel, but to take it in and to really ponder and see, you know, what, you know, how this actually works. You know, modesty instead of ambition, contentment instead of discontentment, to see for ourselves uh, what we can learn when we exercise this, and and uh, and to read the scriptures, to read what the Buddha had to say about these things. You know, one of the wonderful things these days is the, the amount of publications available through the various publishing houses and, of course, the Internet. You can get access to these teachings so much easier than before. I was trying to remember a, a, a simile the Buddha gave this evening when, when uh, Tanyana Moli came over. And I couldn't remember this image the Buddha gave about the wearing down of the... I thought it was the carpenter with his... The, the tool was a, was a, was a chisel, but... Uh, 
Jana Moli very helpfully did a little Google search for me and, and came up with the image that the Buddha gave, which is the axe that of a, of a woodcutter or a carpenter who uses the axe, every day uses his axe, and he knows that day by day the axe handle is being worn down. But he doesn't see in any given day the degree to which that axe handle is being worn down. But it is being worn down. That's the truth. It is being worn down. Every day you use that axe to cut the tree day in, day out, week by week, year by year, and eventually the axe handle has to be replaced because the axe handle has been worn down. And this is an image the Buddha gave, uh, encouraging us with our practice with regards to reflecting on the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, applying ourselves to the constant, simple refinement of practice and trusting and having confidence that these moment-by-moment efforts will produce the accumulation of potential that eventually uh, enables the release that we're looking for. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.